da da di da da coat by Robert Rankin. Chapter 22. Inspector Westlake was enjoying his breakfast. He was billeted in a cozy guest house in Abaddon Street, Brentford, the French Quarter where the wine flowed like water and the trees were gay with the letters of France and full of Parisian promise. Inspector Westlake was living high off La Hague and in Lafast Lane. Mrs. Corbett, who ran the guest house, had this thing about gentlemen in uniforms. It was a big thing, because she was a big woman. Inspector Westlake had this thing about big women. The only crimes that were going to be involved here were victimless crimes. More wine? asked Mrs. Corbett, leaning her prodigious bosoms over the inspector's left shoulder, wine bottle in one hand and tray of Dorgone delight in the other. Not for me, fair lady. The inspector dabbed at his mouth with an oversized red gingham napkin. Too early in the day and me in my uniform. Mrs. Corbett purred above him. She loomed large and smelled of eau de chateau. Do take some coffee then. It's all brewed up in a proper copper coffee pot. And it's French. Just a soup con then. There came a ringing at the doorbell and Mrs. Corbett excused herself from the inspector's presence. Inspector Westlake perused his surroundings. They were heavy on the chintz the lace doilies, and the anti-mascars, and the strings of garlic. Up on the mantel shelf, the inevitable Spanish straw pony wearing a beret. Above this beast, a framed print of a crying child with a penciled-on French mustache. Five different choices of jam upon the clothed table, as many of marmalade, including kints, and more croissants than you could bung down your trousers on a midsummer's morn. He had fallen on his feet, and no doubt about it called up from Sussex to deal with something of a sensitive nature that required his certain touch, but about which he had so far heard nothing. The week had been a worrying one, what with these beheadings, but at least he was away from his wife, a small and mouse-like being whom he had married by accident during an acid trip back in the 1960s, in circumstances that were far too complicated to go into now in any detail. Although he was looking forward to dealing with the something of a sensitive nature, whatever it should turn out to be, he could, in truth, have done without the beheadings. For without the beheadings, he would have had little to do and could have spent more time here in his billet. Mrs. Corbett returned in the company of the young constable. The young constable's name was Constable Justice, and to the disappointment of some, but the relief of others, he was presently unarmed. Mrs. Corbett slotted herself into the doorway, and the young constable found himself having to squeeze past, to the delight of just the one of them, and this one not the constable. "'Good morning, sir,' said this bright young Bobby, saluting as he did so. "'Good morning to you, and at ease.' Inspector Westlake injected a toothsome fiend into his gob and munched upon it. "'Woom-woom,' he asked. "'What do I want?' asked the constable, who prided himself in his knowledge of Esperanto. "'I have been dispatched post-haste from HQ to pick you up in the car, sir, having first delivered this to you. And what is this?' "'An official letter, sir.' Government sealed for your eyes only. Hmm, said the inspector, his gob refilled and his interest tweaked. The constable handed over the letter and saluted once more. Do you want me to wait in the car, sir? He asked. No, no, no. Sit down, constable. Have a cup of tea. The constable's eyes turned towards the obstruction in the doorway. A certain look of fear came into those eyes. A bead of perspiration appeared on the forehead, slightly south of the helmet. I'll wait in the car, sir, if you don't mind. And, sir, the constable leaned low and whispered, Could you please ask that woman to move out of the doorway? She pinched my bum when I came in. Inspector Westlake shook his head sadly. 
Might I have some more toast, do you think? He inquired of Mrs. Corbett. The lady of the house smiled broadly, did a little curtsy, and vanished away to the kitchen. Constable Justice shivered. Right down his spine, that shiver went. I'll wait in the car, he said, and again took to his heels. Inspector Westlake held the envelope up to the light. Watermarked paper, official government seal. Two seals, in fact, the second being that of the House of Windsor. This would be his notification of the sensitive something to which he must add his certain touch. With no greater ado than was required, Inspector Westlake took up an ivory-handled escargot knife, its blade engraved in the manner of Louis XVI, and cut the envelope seals. He opened the envelope, drew out the letter, unfolded it, and read it aloud, softly, for the attention of Inspector Westlake, for your eyes only. Dear Inspector Westlake, as you must know, affairs in the Middle East have reached a crisis point. Our advisors advise us that what they refer to as an apocalypse or Armageddon scenario is unfolding before our very eyes, and if steps are not taken at the earliest opportunity to remedy this situation, then the Empire, nay, indeed the whole wide world, will be in peril. Inspector Westlake paused for a moment at this point. This letter, he said softly and to himself alone, is from, and he turned over the letter and marveled at, the Sovereign's signature. Her Majesty, God bless her, said the inspector, and he felt a shiver run up his back. She was a damn fine woman, Her Madge, a damn fine big woman, what with her royal patronage of Ginster's pies and everything. And she was doing what? Asking him to sort out the crisis in the Middle East? Surely not, thought the inspector, because after all, and let's face it here, at the end of the day, and all that kind of thing. There's always a crisis going on in the Middle East. Always has been, always will be. Such is the way of the Middle East. It's hot and dry and made of concrete and everyone hates everyone and fights them as and when. Which might of course be considered something of an oversimplification, but in all truth, it is the opinion held by most folk in the Western nations. Inspector Westlake read on. As you will also know, since you have risen to the rank of inspector, and are therefore a 24th to the 6th degree Freemason, the powers of the world would prefer that the Middle Eastern conflict remain localized and not escalate to a global level. To this end, we, ourselves, will chair a meeting of these powers of the world in the hope that reason can be made to prevail, Armageddon averted, and the Empire put beyond jeopardy. Upon the recommendation of your superiors, we are placing you in charge of arranging a suitable venue for this meeting. Due to its sensitive nature, it cannot be held upon either crown or government properties. It must be in elegant surroundings. It must be secure. It will be held this coming Sunday. You will arrange everything. And it was signed by the Sovereign. Inspector Westlake folded the letter. He sniffed at the letter and sighed after the sniffing. He tapped this letter upon his forehead and assured that he was unobserved. He kissed the letter. A conference of the powers of the world and one that could determine the world's future, or lack of it. And the arrangements for this were being entrusted to him, and him alone. He was in charge. He unfolded the letter and read that final line once again. You will arrange everything. Yes! Inspector Westlake made a fist with his free hand and punched it towards the ceiling. This was it. The big one. His big chance. Yes, oh yes. If you pulled this one off in the manner known as without a hitch and A-OK... -okay, There'd be a knighthood in this for him. Yes? asked Mrs. Corbett, re-entering the breakfast room in the company of toast. Yes, indeed, 
Inspector Westlake refolded the letter, returned it to its envelope, and slipped the whole into his breast pocket. Good news, then? asked Mrs. Corbett, getting a bit of a lean forward going. The best, said Inspector Westlake, but I know not the lie of the land too well hereabouts. Are there any premises nearby where a conference might be held, with elegant surroundings and a degree of security? Mrs. Corbett stroked at her bosom, as one might stroke at one's chin. The only place around here that fits that kind of bill would be the big house in Gunnersbury Park, she said. It's a museum now, but it was once owned by Princess Amelia, and later by the Rothschilds. And I believe they hold private conferences there. The Rothschilds? Inspector Westlake knew of the Rothschilds. Big in Freemasonry, the Rothschilds. Sounds promising, said Inspector Westlake. I've passed the park several times. I'll pop in later. In fact, I'll pop in now. Not before you finished your toast, surely. Mrs. Corbett grinned, a stunning selection of pearly white teeth, and waggled those bosoms somewhat. Well, perhaps a slice or two. Thank you very much. Mrs. Corbett buttered toast. So what is it then, she asked. Police conference? Police ball? Police pin it strictly hush-hush, I'm afraid. Inspector Westlake made with a wink. All strictly hush-hush. But you know Gunnersbury Park well then, do you? No, said Mrs. Corbett. I've never actually been in that park. But you know of the big house, as you called it. Yes, said Mrs. Corbett. I did, didn't I? Although I'm not altogether certain as to how I do. Perhaps someone mentioned it to me, or put the idea in my head, or something. I don't really know. She turned to take her leave once more, and as she did so, her hand trailed across the tabletop in front of the inspector. And to her surprise, as indeed to that of Inspector Westlake, the cutlery followed her trailing hand, as if drawn to it, as if to a magnet. Chapter 23 Allah be praised, cried Ranger Connor, falling to his knees and wringing his hands in supplication. Johnny Hooker looked down upon Ranger Connor, although only in a physical way. He would always look up to a martial artist. What is going on here? Why are you praising Allah? Johnny asked. He was now back in the park ranger's hut. Ranger Connor was in the park ranger's hut. There seemed to be a lot of drama in the park ranger's hut. It's Ranger Hawtrey, said Ranger Connor. He left a message with Miss Joan on the desk. He's upped and awaited it to Tierra del Fuego. No, said Johnny. Not really, said Johnny. Indeed, and to badness, said Ranger Connor. It seems that he aided and abetted the unauthorized release of his brother. The loony or the castrato? The loony, apparently, sprung him from the special wing of the cottage hospital. He even boasted in his message about the ingenious manner by which he effected the escape. Indeed, said Johnny. Indeed, said Ranger Connor. Alas and alack and things of that nature generally. So this would be a bad thing then, said Johnny. I was grooming the lad for greatness. Such a betrayal this is, such a disappointment. So why were you praising Allah? At your arrival, for your arrival, you are now my only hope. But have no fear, I will treat you like the son I never had. Nice, said Johnny, doubtfully. Although, although, I'd really like to learn Dimat. For self-defense only, of course, not so I might go throwing my weight about in pubs and beating nine bells of crap out of anyone who failed to take my fancy. Naturally not, said Ranger Connor. I think we've already covered that. Self-defense only. Correct. So will you train me? Absolutely, said Ranger Connor. In fact, we'll start at once. You can begin with the special Dimac wrist flex exercises. Splendid, said Johnny. What do I do? 
You clean this frying pan, some lowlife scoundrel, no doubt in the shape of that ingrate Ranger Hawtrey, has defiled with blackened sausage. Wax on, wax off, that kind of business. Then you can do the floor, then repaint the outside of the hut. Then, perhaps I don't want to learn Dimac after all, said Johnny. Ranger Connor shook his head. You can't back out now, he said. You asked me to teach you? That's as good as taking a blood oath. Will I be able to maim and disfigure with little more than a fingertip's pressure by lunchtime? Johnny asked. No, said Ranger Connor. Don't be silly. Sorry, said Johnny. Clean the dishes, said Ranger Connor. Johnny cleaned the dishes and, as he did so, putting in a lot of vigorous wrist action, he asked himself the question that others had asked before him, and certain others were asking now. Why am I here? asked Johnny. As in, what am I doing here? He had decided, had Johnny, that he would lie low for a little bit, maintain a low profile, let the dust settle, keep his head down, and so on and so forth. Just go to work as usual and see what there was to be seen. And it had to be said, he really quite enjoyed being a park ranger. Mostly seemed to involve strolling around the park wearing a uniform, and, once he'd learned a bit of Dimac, duffing up any chavs who defiled the park with their presence. And there was one further thing. Johnny wanted to have another look around the storerooms that lay beneath the big house. Another look at the protein man's printing press. Perhaps James Crawford had left some clues. Some something that would lead Johnny to Crawford's murderer. The murderer? The heirloom gang? Something. A knock came at the door of the hut. Ranger Connor answered that knock. Words were exchanged, and Ranger Connor closed the door once more. Well, 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 said Ranger Connor. I am summonsed to the big house. It appears that some bigwigs wish to hold some kind of secret conference. Countess Vanda requests my presence. Countess Vanda? Johnny asked, up to his elbows in fairy. Curator of the museum. She grants few interviews. The gardeners don't even believe she exists. They say that there's a waxwork and a tin can on a string involved. Strangely, said Johnny, you've lost me there. What about this wrist action? Nice wrist action. Ranger Connor admired Johnny's wrist action. Countess Vanda is photosensitive or something, so she conducts interviews with the staff in almost total darkness in her office in Princess Amelia's sitting room. The gardeners think that there's no Countess Vanda, just a waxwork dummy, a puppet, and that the voice is done through a tin can attached to a string, the voice being that of a popular children's TV presenter with a high voice and a warped sense of humor. Right, said Johnny, nodding thoughtfully, and people think I'm mad. What did you say? Ranger Connor asked. Nothing, said Johnny. Well, you go off and speak to Countess Vanda, and I'll finish the washing up and get stuck into all these other chores, which naturally are not really chores, but subtle forms of dimac training. I've seen the Karate Kid. I know how it works. Precisely, said Ranger Connor. Fate has brought you to me, and no mistake. Johnny splashed on in the sink, and Ranger Connor, like Elvis before him, left the building. Although, obviously, Elvis didn't leave this particular building. Obviously. Johnny whistled Heartbreak Hotel, dried his hands, and having given Ranger Connor sufficient time to be on his way, slipped off to the big house himself, through the entrance hall, then down the secret passage to the storeroom. Although, Johnny slipped through the entrance hall, unnoticed by Joan, who was doing her nails and watching daytime TV. He slid back something or another and entered the secret passage, which was where the although came into it. Although, thought Johnny, although I do want to look at that printing machine, I'd also rather like to have a look at this Countess Curator. She was obviously a new curator, 
as the one who had done the curating when Johnny's father had first brought Johnny to the museum had been an ancient named Stan, who smelled of model train sets and carried himself in the kind of fashion that wasn't the fashion anymore, and secret passages led in all kinds of directions, and all these kinds of directions were remembered by Johnny. So Johnny crept and skulked along the light of Ranger Hotry's torch tunneling the darkness before him, smells of ancient plaster and dust and pigeon poo and rat's muck and mildew, and gently creep and gently skulk along, and up this time rather than down. And Johnny shone the torch before him and found that little hatchway affair, switched off the torch, and removed the hatchway affair. The hatchway affair lay behind a portrait of Sir Henry Crawford, many times great-granddaddy of the recently deceased James. This portrait hung over the fireplace in Princess Amelia's sitting room, and the little hatchway affair removed the eyes from the portrait to be replaced by the eyes of Johnny Hooker, just like in those old-fashioned movies, which sometimes starred Bob Hope. And didn't you always want to live in a house with a secret passage and a big portrait with the removable eyes that you could peer from behind all secretive-like? You didn't? Well, shame upon you. Johnny Hooker always had, and he was loving this. He had to do some getting accustomed. The room was in mostly darkness. A single shaft of sunlight slotted down between the curtains and fell upon the now-naked head of Ranger Connor. Ah, said Countess Vanda. My work, who had his cap off. Johnny could not see Countess Vanda. He could hear her, though. Ranger Connor, she said, one hears good reports of you. Thank you, ma'am, said the ranger. And one hears so many bad reports nowadays, so much trouble and strife in the world, so dispiriting. Indeed, ma'am, said Ranger Connor, and so much of it caused by young fellow me lads who would benefit from a spell of conscription and a short, sharp knock. One does so agree. Ranger Connor nodded his naked head. Sunlight sparkled on his baldy patch. And so, continued Countess Vanda, it is with great pleasure that one learns that the powers of the world are to hold some kind of major peace conference right here in the big house this very Sunday. One gave one's go-ahead to this at once, of course. Of course, said Ranger Connor, bowing his sunlit scalp. Now there will be policemen. Policemen aplenty, I shouldn't wonder. Johnny shrank back a little at this. But one does not wish for you to become involved with these policemen, Ranger Connor. Common folk are these. I wish you to form your own security force. How many rangers do you have under your command? Twenty? Thirty? Just the one, sadly, ma'am, said Ranger Connor. We were cut back in the last financial year. The choice, I seem to recall, being between rangers and a new car for the chairman of the borough's parks committee, said she, too. It's probably a bit eleventh hour for me to take on any extra manpower, said he of the sun-bathed fonts. But I'm skilled in the martial arts, and I do have a good man under my command, even if he is a bit of a weirdo. Weirdo? whispered Johnny. Then be my eyes and ears. Stay away from the policemen, but keep an eye out for trouble. The threat of terrorism is ever-present. Anything suspicious, report directly to me. Which is to say, to one. Do you understand? I do, said Ranger Connor. I was wondering, ma'am, this conference. It will involve heads of state, will it? It will. Including our head of state? Her Majesty? Countess Vanda paused, and it was a long, silent pause. Her Majesty will be present, she said, and when done with pausing. Which is why great trust is being placed in you. Policemen are buffoons. No threat must come close to the monarch. I see, and Ranger Connor nodded. 
So will it be permissible for me to tool up, as it were, carry a weapon, concealed or otherwise? On this occasion, yes. Splendid, Ranger Connor rubbed his hands together. Can I help myself to something from the stores? As long as it does not leave the park. Splendid. Now leave me. I have much to do. Yes, ma'am. Thank you, ma'am. And backing away and rubbing his hands together once more, Ranger Connor left the room, closing the door behind him. Johnny Hooker drew back his eyes and prepared to replace the hatch. A flicker of movement caught his attention. Johnny Hooker paused. Countess Vanda had risen to her feet, possibly from behind a desk or a table Johnny was unable to see. But he caught that flicker of movement, and now he caught also her profile. Caught itself in that shaft of sunlight. And Johnny Hooker noted well that profile, because he had seen it before. The darkest of hair, the greenest of eyes, and the sweetest of noses. A profile he'd seen so recently. That of Nurse Hollywood. Chapter 24 Hit the ground running and head for the hills, buddy boy. Mr. Giggles was most emphatic. Johnny shook his head. The peelers, said Mr. Giggles. The bill, the filth, the fuzz, the buggers in blue. They'll be crawling over every inch of this place come lunchtime. You think? said Johnny. I know, buddy boy. And don't buddy boy me, please. Away, said Mr. Giggles. Spraylin, on your toes. This advice was offered in the dark, as the battery of X-Ranger Hotry's torch had given up its ghost and Johnny was now feeling his way about in a secret passage. Things couldn't be worse, said the disembodied voice of Mr. Giggles. You are oh so so in the wrong place at the wrong time. Really? said Johnny. Really? Do you think? And you're being all too calm and collected. And you don't like that, do you? I have no idea what you mean. My, it's darker in here than your mate Paul's soiled underwear. Let's head for daylight, then up and away. And this would be your considered opinion? Take my advice, said Mr. Giggles. I know what's good for you. It's interesting, isn't it? whispered Johnny. The occasions when you choose to speak and those when you do not. You told me to keep quiet unless I had something really pertinent to add. Johnny nodded invisibly and continued to feel his way along. And you really think that I'm going to run away, do you? A strategic withdrawal is not necessarily a retreat. In fact, a strategic withdrawal can make the lovemaking oh so much sweeter. Please be silent, said Johnny. I have things to think about. No, you don't. No things at all. Johnny stopped and spoke with a certain sharpness in his voice. I think that I do, he said. You are not going to suggest this is coincidence. Coincidence? I don't know what you mean. That I am here, and that what is clearly going to be a most important meeting of, how shall I put this, the controllers of the world, is going to take place here on Sunday. And what would such a meeting have to do with you? Oh, come on, said Johnny. That is somewhat disingenuous. Johnny, said Mr. Giggles. I really have no idea what is going on in that head of yours. Is it all that gibberish Hari Hatri spun you? That you are some lone hero upon a sacred quest? What do you think is going to happen here? Are terrorists going to menace the conference? Are you going to do a Bruce Willis and save them? You don't even own a vest. I didn't mention terrorists, said Johnny. Where did you get the idea of terrorists from? Well, if not terrorists, then what? You are doing all the theorizing, said Johnny. 
I haven't said anything except that I do not believe that this is a coincidence. Perhaps I am being somewhat self-obsessed, but I do believe that at last my life has some kind of purpose. It does. You're a good musician. Tell you what, go back to Paul's and spend the day there, then do the gig tonight. What do you say to that? And tomorrow? A holiday abroad. I think not, said Johnny. To quote you, I think I'll stick around for a while. Ah, and Johnny pushed upon a panel. I think we're in the storerooms. And they were. Now, said Johnny, entering a storeroom and sliding the secret something that disguised the passage's entrance back into place, I'd like to take another look at that printing press. Johnny opened box after box with Mr. Giggles tut-tut-tutting. Why? asked Mr. Giggles. But Johnny didn't reply. Johnny began to root amongst the things in the storeroom. I don't know why you're wasting your time with this, said Mr. Giggles. So you think I should get out of here at once? Absolutely, yes. Then I'll continue to search about. Simply to be contrary? If you have nothing pertinent to add? I know, I know. There were a great many packing cases in the storeroom. Johnny took up a crowbar that lay, as they so often do, handily near at hand, and attacked the lid of the nearest. What are you doing? squealed Mr. Giggles. You'll damage the valuable exhibits with your big silly hands. Not exhibits, said Johnny. The label on the cases say, Effects from the estate of the late James Crawford bequeathed to Gunnersbury Park Museum. I'll bet it's his record collection. And it was, amongst other things, as he did so. Eventually, Johnny opened a box and said, What do we have here? Gramophone records? More leather-bound notebooks, said Johnny. A good many leather-bound notebooks. More paranoid ramblings, muttered Mr. Giggles. Johnny opened a notebook and read what was written within. Regarding the Devil's Cord, Johnny read. And then what was written beneath. The Devil's Cord, also known as the Devil's Interval, also known as the Tritone, augmented fourth or diminished fifth, is an exact bisection of an octave. The octave has, throughout history, been regarded as a symbol of perfection. Consequently, the Devil's Interval was seen, and indeed heard, to be the most harsh and discordant interval and as it is the exact antithesis or opposite of perfection, the octave, or God. This interval has gained a reputation of being demonic. In early church music, from which most Western music springs, only the intervals of a perfect fourth, perfect fifth, and octave were permitted because they gave a perfect or pure harmony as befitted divine worship, and instilled a sense of stability and resolution in the listener. The devil's interval gives rise in the listeners to a sense of unease or restlessness, which needs resolution. In modern-day music, the tritone is used ubiquitously and is often utilized as a pivot to drive the music on into alternative harmonic realms. It is used particularly in jazz, pop, and rock, all of which have been denounced at one time or another as the devil's music. And where is most of your mankind based? Right around middle C on the piano. Your basic pop song has your basic three-chord trick, G, C, and D seventh, and seemingly, it would appear, in the light of this, not without good cause. Now that is interesting, said Johnny. Really? said Mr. Giggles. In what way would that be? I'm a musician, said Johnny, but I've never heard of the Devil's Interval before. But thinking about it, it's used in all kinds of atmospheric music, like background music in horror films. It's used in the title sequence of The Simpsons, said Mr. Giggles. So you know all about the Devil's Interval? 
I know about most things, said Mr. Giggles, which is why you should pay attention to what I say to you. You'll find that the devil's interval is mostly used in the lower registers of the tonic scale. Your heavy meddlers sing in deep, deep voices, don't they? Johnny nodded. They did. Because big, deep bass notes are associated with evil, way down deep, like the location of hell. And angelic voices are high. Your sopranos and your castrati, of course. Voices soaring up to heaven. And right in the middle, halfway between heaven and hell, you have mankind. Right here on earth. Popular music, middle of the road music, music of the range music, music of the common man. And they'll have all your da-da-dee-da-da in them somewhere. It's the heartbeat of popular music. A tonal key that opens a musical door. I'm impressed, said Johnny. You're actually talking sense there. It's elementary stuff. Any music student could tell you all about it. I'm going to borrow it. But first, and Johnny took to replacing the packing case lids and hammering back their nails with the crowbar. Best not to leave any evidence that any crime has been committed here, eh? Then I'm not impressed, said Johnny. Thanks for putting me straight. Mind you, said Mr. Giggles, there's always a spinner in the works, as it were. One piece of music that doesn't fit. A piece of classical music with lots of high notes and more devil's intervals per bar than any other piece. And what's that? Johnny asked. The dance of the sugar plum fairy, said Mr. Giggles. Johnny was rooting some more in a packing case. Well, aha, said he. Or should I say Eureka? Mr. Giggles feigned lack of interest. Laptop, Johnny said. James Crawford's laptop. I'll bet he typed up all his theories from his notebook onto his laptop. And so you're going to steal it? And as luck, or fate, or coincidence, or whatever would have it, just as Johnny had hammered the last nail into place, what is that? said Johnny, and he listened. A key was being turned in the storeroom door. Up and away, whispered Johnny, and he took to the secret passage. Two men entered the storeroom. One was young and firm and assertive. The other was older and complaining. I'm not a porter, this older one complained, and Johnny knew that voice. I'm a park ranger, said Ranger Connor, and it's not my job to shift boxes about. How very unpatriotic of you, said the younger man. Johnny didn't recognize the voice, and he couldn't see the younger man, so he couldn't see that he was wearing a black suit, black tie, white shirt, black shoes, and dark sunglasses. He spoke with the accent known as posh. He spoke with the voice of authority. I commandeered you as you were leaving the big house because you carry yourself with military bearing. Yes, flustered Ranger Connor. Well, and I said to myself, this chap looks like a Sandhurst type, probably here on special ops. Well, went Ranger Connor with a tad less fluster. Give him a task that is top priority and a man such as this can be trusted to carry it out for queen and country, don't you know? Well, went the Ranger, fluster free. Item in one of these cases required. Very important. Security of the crown and all that sort of thing. Just require you to go through the crates, Fish the fellow out and bring it up to me. I have some business with the woman on reception desk. And I'll just bet I know what kind, thought Johnny. Well, went Ranger Connor once more. Laptop computer jobby, said the young Toph. Whip it out of the crate and bring it up to me. Ranger Connor grunted. Top man, said the Toph. One try left, said Mr. Giggles. Get it over with and let's get going. Johnny didn't hear him say it, though for Johnny had made a strategic withdrawal along the secret passage and out of the big house and was now sitting beside the ornamental pond, opposite the door of Temple, with the laptop open on his lap. "'You'd best throw that in the pond,' advised Mr. Giggles. 
You're bound to get caught with it and be taken off to prison. Password, said Johnny. I need the password. Mr. Giggles whistled jailhouse rock. Now what would his password be? Johnny asked. Smelly Willie, Big Hairy Bottom Burps, Bum Poo, said Mr. Giggles. And you complained about toilet humor lowering the tone. Just trying to lighten the situation as you're clearly doomed. Throw it in the pond and let's be away. Johnny tapped in letters. His guess was rejected. You only get three tries, said Mr. Giggles. I know, said Johnny, who thought hard and tried once more and failed. Johnny drummed his fingers on the laptop. One more try was all he had. There was no telling what secrets on the laptop might yield up. None at all, in all probability. But no, that couldn't be right. The chap with the posh voice wanted the laptop. Security of the crown, he'd said. There had to be answers. Some key that would open some door. Johnny smiled and tapped letters into the keyboard. The laptop screen lit up. And Mr. Giggles said, Oh, piece of cake, said Johnny. Luck of the damned, more likely. Well, you inspired it, said Johnny. With your talk about popular music, music of the common man, a tonal key that opens a musical door. Mr. Giggles groaned, and Johnny said, That's right. Da-da-dee-da-da, said Mr. Giggles. Da-da-dee-da-da, said Johnny.